0: What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-ass history this week. On the agenda, going to be having a chat about the Battle of the Alamo. Which, uh, if you're anything like me, you you would have heard of without actually knowing what it was all about and what its significance was. We'll also talk about some of the some of the the, the big names that were there, some of whom you you would have definitely heard of as well. Uh, The Battle of the Alamo was one of the key events of the Texas Revolution, Uh, this period during the mid-1830s when Texas gained independence from Mexico before later becoming part of the United States in the 1840s. It involved a two-week-long siege of of a small religious outpost that had sort of been uh, retrofitted into a small fortress, more or less. And uh, the group of Texian fighters that held out against this Mexican army and their commander, who who was noted for his cruelty, this bloke was uh, was was a very nasty bloke indeed. The Battle of the Alamo is very famous today, mainly uh, thanks to the films and the TV shows uh, that have been you know made about it uh, since then. And it was actually quite interesting to actually find out what it really was, rather than its sort of you know it's the legend and the myth behind uh, surrounding it in fiction. And and also find out why it's considered such an important event, again, outside of just the the films and the TV shows. I started reading about the Alamo actually because uh, I got a suggestion from alert listener and esteemed patron of the show, Giovanni Rodriguez. Uh, Giovanni emailed me to suggest that I read about Jim Bowie, after whom, of course, the Bowie knife is named. And Jim Bowie was one of the blokes who was there at the Battle of the Alamo. He's one of the commanders, uh, and he's not the only famous figure from the Amer- from American folklore to have been there. Davy Crockett, the frontiersman, was also at the Battle of the Alamo. Um, and so, after reading uh, Bowie's story, and that led me to the reading about about the Battle of the Alamo, which led me to lead, lead uh, led me to read about Davy Crockett. And I thought, Margaret, right, we'll just do all three together. Don't even worry about it; it'll be simple. You know what could go wrong. So, enjoy another. 50-minute long uh, podcast that's only supposed to be 30, whatever, it's fine, don't care. Thanks so much, Giovanni, for the suggestion. Very bloody interesting to read about all this, and hopefully everyone listening gets something out of it as well. So we're going all the way back to 1835 here, all the way back here to the outset of the Texas Revolution. Before 1835, Texas had been part of Mexico, along with uh, other other. You know areas that are now part of the United States, including uh, the current states of California, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, and of course New Mexico. So it might be quite interesting to learn. Uh, you know, people might be quite interested to learn that all of those states are actually used to be part of uh, part of Mexico. In the years leading up to the Revolution, uh, more and more American settlers had moved from the United States into Texas, which again was part of Mexico, and the Mexican government wasn't a fan of this. They didn't like all of these immigrants crossing uh, crossing the border into their into their territory. Uh, They suspected that it was a US-led campaign to start an American insurgency within Texas, within Mexico, that would then lead to an annexation. And uh, so in circumstances that create this utterly bizarre mirror image of what's happening along the u.s-mexico border today in 2019 the Mexican government started to crack down on these immigrants the Mexican government did everything they could to keep Americans out of Texas and this culminated in Mexico announcing Swift and harsh punishments for any foreigner who decided to uh, to take up arms against or, or resist the American or uh, the the uh, Mexican authorities there it branded them as pirates and it, it meant that they could be executed immediately they wouldn't be taken prisoner or, or sent back to their homes or anything they'd just be killed and this move it was known as the tornell decree it had the opposite effect to what was intended. It actually galvanised support for for the American immigrants in Texas that had moved there, and it meant that more and more people came again to uh, to support the right of the the rights of these Americans, the the these Texian settlers as they were known there. Uh, and it meant the conflict was effectively unavoidable as stacks of, of volunteer soldiers now moved into Mexico uh, to fight on the behalf of uh, of American immigrants. Now, this made me stop and think about things. I have to say because. You know how today a lot of Americans clamour about securing their border to stop this, uh, you know, so-called Mexican invasion that threatens to take over the United States from within. They actually might have a point. All of these people who are saying that you know the Mexicans they're sneaking over the border illegally to come and uh, you know take over their country, they actually it's actually got a very relevant and real historical baseline. Their 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 fears here, because the Texas Revolution it began after the worst fears of all of the build-that-wall fanatics took place, a bunch of illegal immigrants entered a foreign country and began an armed insurgency, ultimately overthrowing the government of the region. That's what all of these red-hatted idiots are afraid of. And maybe the reason they're so afraid of it happening is because they know just how easy it is to pull off because all of their ancestors did it in 1835. They're worried about it happening back to them. To make this even juicier, to make this whole thing even juicier, to make these fools look even more cretinous, most of the illegal immigrants in Texas, which was, don't forget, just actual literal Mexico before the, uh, before the revolution, all of these immigrants, they refused to adapt to Mexican culture, they refused to speak Spanish, they didn't respect uh, Mexican laws, laws, for example, such as the prohibition of slavery, now look, I know that most people don't listen to this podcast for its its cutting political ob- observations, and I, you know, I'm not going to go on about it too much longer. But learning all about this, all learning all about this in the, in the in the lead up to the Texas Revolution, it absolutely astounded me. So many of these cloth-eared fools in the United States today, they're worried about being overrun by an insurgency of illegal immigrants from Mexico, who they believe won't adapt to American culture or speak English, and who will ultimately take over their country. However, the only reason that Texas is part of the United States. States today and not Mexico is because the forebears of these red-hatted idiots once again did the exact thing that they are so vehemently opposed to today. So, as I say, maybe their fears are justified after all because they're speaking from experience. Anyway, the revolution It began on the 23rd of October, 1835. Fighting between the Texians and the Mexicans broke out, and and a provisional Texian government was established as we head into 1836. The Texian army is established, and it takes the fight to the Mexican forces that are spread out throughout Texas. Rather, you know, not a huge uh, military force uh, of Mexicans at this stage, just garrisons at forts here and there like that. Uh, and so the Texian army, they do a pretty good job of it too. They do a pretty good job of clearing out all of these uh, these, these smaller Mexican gar- garrisons and sending them pack, uh, packing back south over the other side of the Rio Grande. Uh, by the way, you've heard me say Texian more than a couple of times now. Texian is the term that's used to refer to the immigrants and settlers who moved to Texas while it was part of Mexico, and it then also came to refer to supporters of the Texas Revolution. This is obviously as distinct from Texas. Texan, which is obviously today's demonym for people from the United States, uh, from, the, from the US state of uh, of Texas. So, Texian is, the, is sort of a, a historical word to describe people who, uh, who moved to or lived in Texas years and years ago, whereas today, of course, Texan is what we use to describe people in Texas uh, these days. Anyway, the revolution, it's in full swing. The Texians enjoying a good amount of success driving Mexican forces out of Texas. More or less every Mexican garrison that they, uh, that they come across is, is handily defeated and it's forced to retreat back south. And uh, one such defeated Mexican garrison was the one at a small religious outpost that had been converted into this slipshod little fortress called the Alamo Mission in uh, in what is today San Antonio. And today, obviously, the Alamo is more or less right right in the middle of San Antonio. And uh, in those days, the the Alamo was again this sort of uh, not quite a church but yeah a, a mission a religious outpost that had been uh, that had been sort of fortified and defended a little bit they're like that anyway um the, uh, the it's, it's garrisoned by Mexicans the texians arrive they capture it and uh, and they improve they they improve the uh, the fortifications that the Mexicans had put there they install artillery they ready its defenses and they also garrison it with around 100 men of their own There are also many other Texian victories, like when they captured the Alamo, and as I said, the revolution generally going very well. Um, However, in the wake of all these Texian uh, victories, the Mexican president, Antonio López de Santa Anna, he led an army into Texas in February 1836, so uh, this is after the war has gone on for, you know, three or four months here. He leads an army into Texas to bring the region back under control. He wants to uh, assert Mexican authority over this region, uh, over Texas, and, uh, and bring it back under the control uh, of the Mexican government properly. Now, this army is called the Mexican Army of Operations, and this army waged a brutal and bloody war of conquest against the Texians, most of whom weren't professional soldiers and were massively unprepared to fight a much, much bigger army. Thousands and thousands of Mexicans uh, marched into Texas to uh, to take the fight to the Texians, and uh, true to their word, as set out in the Tornell Decree, the Mexicans did not take prisoners. They offered no quarter, they executed Anyone who surrendered, they branded them as pirates and executed them, and as such, they cut a vicious swath of bloody destruction through the Texian forces as they fought their way back north. This Mexican resurgence, it sets the stage for the Battle of the Alamo as part of the Mexican army that was personally led by the Mexican president, fought their way north towards San Antonio, which would take them, of course, right past the Alamo. Things were not looking good at the Alamo either. This huge, vicious Mexican force was bearing down on them, and with barely a hundred men defending, again, what was little more than a makeshift fortress, it was not a happy state of affairs. The bloke in charge of the Alamo, Colonel James C. Neal, he requested reinforcements and supplies from the provisional Texian government, but they'd been thrown into chaos with this Mexican army tearing them to bits, and so they weren't weren't any help at all. So Neal instead went to the commander-in-chief of the Texian army, whose name is Sam Houston, and he asked. Him for help. Now, Houston said that he couldn't spare the men, but knowing that the Mexicans would be able to retake the Alamo with their superior numbers, he instead sm- uh, sent out a small contingent to help with the, uh, to help the garrison there uh, destroy the fortifications and retreat with all of the artillery that was sta- all of the Texian artillery that was stationed there. So you know, so it wouldn't fall in a Mexican hand. So the Me- Mexicans wouldn't be able to then come and fortify their position in uh, in this little sort of you know this this fortified camp there. So. The bloke who was in charge of the contingent that was sent off to destroy uh, the Alamo and and bring back the, uh, the artillery was none other than Colonel Jim Bowie. Now, Jim Bowie was a famous frontiersman and a pioneer. He's best known today, of course, for having the Bowie knife named after him. He was a very famous figure at the time, principally for his involvement in the Sandbar Fight. Now, this was when he sort of made his name. This was when he emerged as a as a hero of the frontier, or not maybe not a hero, but definitely identity a figure uh, a figure of myth uh, from the frontier here. The sandbar fight was a duel that was held in 1827 on a large sandbar in the Mississippi River, which is uh, which obviously on the border between Mississippi and Louisiana. It's kind of like a little island almost, not in the middle of the river, but uh, just out from the shore a little bit there like that. On the 19th of September, 1827, two wealthy blokes agreed to have a duel to settle their differences, and they each brought five people out, to them, uh, out with them uh, to, the, uh, to this sandbar uh, you know, to, to watch them have it out. The duel itself was very boring. Both men shot at each other twice, they both they both missed, and then they approached each other and they shook hands. They packed up their things and they started to get ready to head back to the riverbank. But as they did, some of the people they'd brought with them started arguing, which led to one bloke, Colonel Robert A. Crane, raising his pistol and shooting at another bloke with whom he was arguing. Unfortunately, this shot missed and it hit instead our mate Jim Bowie, but this now leads to Bowie's mates returning fire, and all of a sudden, a what was just previously a rather dull duel had became it just became an all-in brawl, a chaotic, uh, blood-fueled brawl. As as people went for it, hammer and tongs. During this brawl, Bowie he pulls out his famous knife and he moves into attack. And and after having been clonked on the head by one bloke with a pistol, he, he the, the bloke hit him on the head with with his pistol so hard that the pistol actually broke. Bowie was then shot at again. This time it missed, however. Uh, He moved to try to attack the bloke who had shot at him, got stabbed in the chest with a sword cane. The point of the sword cane was luckily deflected by his sternum, which is obviously, you know, he still got stabbed, but a bit better than it going through his heart or his lungs or whatever else. And after going towards the bloke who had uh, shot at him, he grabbed him and pulled him down onto onto his knife. He then got up. Got shot again, right? And this time, turns around to attack the bloke who had just shot him. You shot him in the arm. wheeled around to retaliate, sliced off part of the attacker's, the shooter's forearm, and then was shot at a fourth time. This one, this this one, luckily missed him. I reckon these blokes must have trained at the bloody Imper- Imperial Stormtrooper Marksmanship Academy. I reckon. But Bowie, after all the fighting, ultimately he's dragged away from the duel by the bloke who shot him by accident in the first place, Crane. Um, and as he was being dragged away, Bowie said, "You know, because like all these people." All the people are still they're still brawling and still bludgeoning and shooting and stabbing, stabbing each other. It's an absolute bloodbath. And Bowie says to Colonel Crane, he says, Colonel Crane, I do not think under the circumstances you ought to have shot me. A very good point, Bowie, old mate, because Crane starting this brawl led to two of the 12 men dying and four of them being injured. Bowie had the worst of it by far out of all the survivors. He was extremely badly wounded. He'd been shot and stabbed and clobbered and, and who knows what else. But he survived, unbelievably, and from then on he was never seen without his famous knife, which, as a result of the story of the sandbar fight spreading far and wide, became a very popular weapon uh, associated with the rugged life of of the American pioneer. Anyway. After recovering from his wounds, he moved to Texas in 1828, and he settled there permanently in 1830. He got married in 1831, and in that same year, he organised an expedition to the legendary Los Amalgres Silver Mine, which was believed to be outside San Antonio in an area that, was, uh, that tended to be patrolled by, uh, by the local Comanche people. He set off in November 1831 in search of this mine, obviously itching for some more adventure, with 11 other blokes, including his brother Rezin, who, uh, who claimed to be the inventor of the design of the, of the Bowie knife. Uh, anyway, the expedition, it ran afoul of a Comanche hunting party on this uh, while, they were, while they were off looking for this mine, uh, which led to a long battle between the expedition and the hunting party. Now, despite being outnumbered 14 to 1, Bowie's men actually won the day. They forced the Comanche to retreat after they had lost 40 of their men, Bowie's, Bowie's party had only lost one. And then they continued searching, continued to look for the mine, obviously never found it. it, it I, I think the, the, as far as I could tell, the mine is just, it's, it's, it's a legendary mine. And I don't even know if it actually did, did exist in the first place. In any case, uh, headed back to San Antonio, empty handed. But this, this story that had spread about him, uh, him and his men fighting off this Comanche hunting party, uh, being so desperately outnumbered, once again, raised his profile, raised, it, it, it increased his fame and uh, and he became a very well known, as I say, even even more well known uh, figure, uh, as, you know, as a hero. Or again, I don't know if hero is the right word, but as, as as a figure of the American West. There, anyway, he wasn't finished with adventure. Uh, at the outbreak of the of the Texas Revolution, Bowie volunteered as a member of the Texian militia that went on to become the Texian army. And uh, after fighting in battles against the Mexican, including uh, the siege of San Antonio, uh, he also fought in a battle known as the Grass Fight, which doesn't just have a funny name. The story of the grass fight is brilliant. So on the 26th of November, 1835, a Texian scout whose name was, uh, well, he was known as Def, right? But he's... he's Actual name was Arasta Smith, Deaf Smith, right as he was called. Um, he was a scout and he reported uh, having seen a Mexican baggage train accompanied by a large armed guard not too far from San Antonio. Now the Texian army they decided to attack the convoy as they reckoned it would be full of silver to pay the Mexican troops. So Jim Bowie, who obviously has a bit of bit of uh, bit of uh, experience hunting down silver. Uh, led 60 Texian cavalry to attack the Mexican force. And despite the Mexicans having a cannon as well as numerical superiority, Bowie and his men were able to drive them off and away from the convoy. And it was a bit surprising to see the Mexicans abandon all of the horses and the mules that loaded down with such valuable cargo. But no worries, they all sort of fled at top speed as soon as they realized the, the day was lost and left and you know left the, spo- the spoils to the Texians there. And the Texians, they're thrilled at themselves. They've won the day, easy game. Let's get all that silver back to the camp, boys. We can go and count our money. So the Texians, they excitedly begin to tear into the Mexican baggage to get a look at their loot. And instead of finding silver, they find grass. The Mexican soldiers had been up, They weren't guarding anything. There were so many of them with the baggage train because they'd all been sent off to cut grass and transport it back to the, uh, back to the Mexican headquarters or the, the Mexican camps to feed all the horses. They weren't transporting great riches under heavy guard. It was nothing like that. It was very menial. And as ridiculous as it might sound, the grass fight was actually quite important in raising morale amongst the Texian army because it was an example of how the Mexicans could actually be defeated even when they outnumbered the Texians there. So it was uh, it was it was something that sort of was a bit of a spur to the flank of the Texians as they continued to fight there. Additionally, Bowie also uh, captured forty or so horses and mules, which isn't too bad either. Anyway. In 1836, Bowie was sent to the Alamo uh, to bring back this artillery, as I mentioned, and destroy the fortress uh, so it couldn't fall into Mexican hands. So that was his next assignment. A little bit after the uh, after the grass fight, he turned up on the uh, on the 19th of January 1835 to find a hundred or so blokes there to defend it, without much in the way of supplies. Now Bowie very quickly realised that they weren't going to be able to withdraw the artillery. It was far too heavy, and they didn't have enough oxen or horses to shift it. And so the bloke in charge, Colonel Neal, you remember. Uh, he talked to Bowie about the situation, and uh, uh, and the men agreed together to try to hold the fortress instead of abandoning it. It was they they believed that with the artillery, with the fortifications they had, they would be able to at least give give the Mexicans a a run for their money there. Both of them believed that it was in a critically important strategic position, and if they found reinforcements and they were resupplied, they actually think they they believed that they would they would be able to withhold it from a uh, withstand it uh, withstand a Mexican siege. So Bowie, therefore, he wrote to everyone he could think of, imploring them to send aid to the Alamo as the Mexican army approached. In, as I say, he wrote to everyone he could think of, but there was one letter that was very interesting indeed that he sent to uh, the Texian governor, Henry Smith. And this is what he wrote in it. Colonel Neal and myself have come to the solemn resolution that we will rather die in these ditches than give it up to the enemy. So you can see that the blokes took it very, very seriously and they were, they were determined, come what may, to hold the Alamo in the face of the Mexican advancement there. Unfortunately, not many reinforcements arrived and those that did were volunteers who had come of their own accord rather than having been sent there officially. However, one of the blokes who turned up as part of these reinforcements was none other than Davy Crockett, a name I'm sure you've heard before. Davy Crockett is famous today thanks to, uh, I would say, broadly speaking, thanks to the Disney TV show that was made in the 1950s, which was loosely biographical, more so than I thought it actually would be after doing a bit of reading about it. Um, But Crockett himself was born on the 17th of August 1927, and while he was born in Tennessee, uh, the nearest mountaintop from his birthplace is over 20 kilometres away. I did check that, so he was not born on on a mountaintop. Um, His family was poor and he was sold into uh, indentured servitude at the age of 12 to help pay off his father's debts. So pretty rough stuff for the youngster there. But it only lasted a few weeks, and the next year he he, uh, he was sent to school but young Crockett, he was not a fan of school, as it turned out. And one time after getting caught wagging, uh, he knew he was going to go home and get whipped by his father. And as a result, he actually ran away. He ran away from home, joined a cattle drive that took him to Virginia, where he p- picked up more work here and there in the coming years. He worked as a teamster, worked as a farmhand, apparently even worked as a hatter for a while there, he, traveling traveling around all over the place. Uh, until 1802, when he finally headed back to his family, who actually didn't recognise him after so long. They hadn't seen him for years, but they were happy enough to have him back. And, uh, and uh, Crockett actually went uh, back to work to help his father pay off his debts. So for a while, it was happy families. Uh, but before long, Crockett headed off on more adventures. He had itchy feet once again. And so he went back to Virginia to seek his fortune and he found more work there, but then fell in love with and married a woman named Mary Polly Finley in 1806. Now, Crockett did all right after getting married. He seemed to have settled down a little bit. He bought some land, he worked on a ranch, and he put some money aside. But in 1813, obviously yearning for a bit more adventure, he joined up with the Tennessee militia who were fighting Native Americans, uh, the Creek. Under General Andrew Jackson. He worked as a scout rather than a rather than a hand-to-hand fighter for the most part. And his abilities as a hunter and a forager they were admired greatly by his regiment. He was a talented tracker as well, and he was able to navigate through the wilderness with ease. So this bloke, again, the, the archetypical frontiersman, and, and, and of course, made a name for himself again as as this, uh, as this master of the outdoors, this uh this wild man here after years of travelling about through you know wild untamed lands not really a surprise that he was uh, that he become this sort of uh, again archetypical uh, frontiersman and uh, again, people very impressed uh, with the Tennessee, in the Tennessee militia uh, with his abilities. And, and the stories about him began to sort of spread far and wide. And he actually enjoyed his time with the militia so much that even after his initial term was, uh, was finished with the militia, he actually re-enlisted to fight in the War of 1812. And if you want to hear about some of the utterly ridiculous stories to come out of that war, have a listen to uh, Episode 8. Just completely absurd it was. But after, the, um, after he'd finished fighting the War of 1812, he returned home in 1814 before the, before the war had ended. Uh, but tragically, his wife died shortly after his return, leaving him uh, with their three children to look after. He remarried, therefore, to a widow named Elizabeth Patton, who had two kids of her own, and they had three more together. So we had quite a large family there. But after coming home from the war, he went into politics. He went into public service. He worked as a public commissioner and then a justice of the peace, and then eventually ended up in the Tennessee General Assembly as as an elected representative in 1821. His rise continued as a politician. By 1825, he ran for U.S. Congress. And despite losing that election, he went on to win a seat in 1827. He was a strong supporter in Congress of of settlers' rights, which won't be a surprise. He campaigned vigorously for the people out on the the western edges of the U.S. territory. Including quite interestingly, this may come a bit as a, a bit of a surprise, considering he was involved in, in, in fighting, you know, the the, the Creek, the, uh, the Native Americans. There, uh, he actually was a vocal proponent of uh, of native of, of of rights for Native Americans. In 1830, he made the politically suicidal move to vote against. Andrew Jackson's Indian Removal Act. This is his former commander. Don't forget, he had fought under General Jackson. And now that uh, Jackson was president and he put uh, put in place this Indian Removal Act, the legislation that brought about the Trail of Tears, Crockett actually opposed it. And it cost him his seat in Congress. He was the only representative from Tennessee to vote against it. His decision was enormously unpopular. But Crockett was obviously a man of conscience, Because he actually said, he talked about his reasoning as why he opposed the Indian Removal Act. And this is what he said. He said this, I believed it was a wicked, unjust measure. I voted against this Indian bill and my conscience yet tells me that I gave a good, honest vote and one that I believe will not make me ashamed in the day of judgment. So I tell you what, he ended up on the right side of history there, well ahead of his time he was, but he ended up on the wrong side of the voter and the voters, they turfed him out of office. For uh, for this perceived indiscretion in 1831, he was definitely swimming against the tide when it came to uh, you know the zeitgeist, the sort of what 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 was uh, politically acceptable or politically expedient at the time. But still, I have to say, Davy Crockett has earned a fair bit of admiration from me, and I would say from other people uh, this time for for again just being well ahead of his time, especially considering the area that he came from, out there in Tennessee, out there on the frontier, uh, having the having the forethought and the and and the the, the presence of mind to to stand up for what he believed is right. So good on you, Davy Crockett there. Anyway, his fame continued to grow, not just because of his exploits as a congressman, but also because of the strange hobbies that he uh, kept up, even while a member of the U.S. Congress, he would still go big game hunting. He'd go off hunting bears, uh, even during you know while while Congress was uh, was uh, maybe not while it was sitting. He was probably there in the meeting, you know in the in the room while while they were actually having a chat about stuff. But on his days off, he's off hunting bears in the woods. He'd uh, he'd bring back their, their their pelts and their meat to sell. And as this wild pioneer who had also been a congressman, of course, there were stories published about him. He was a very very interesting figure indeed. And uh, there was even a play based on his life. So a very, very famous, uh, very famous bloke he was. And all this helped him actually get back into Congress after being turfed out in 1831. In, in 1833, he was re-elected. And during this period, uh, he, he worked on an autobiography uh, during this term in Congress. He'd planned to promote the book and perhaps even use it as a launching point for a bid for the presidency, because again, he was very well known and, and he definitely had his supporters, even as he had his detractors there. But this crashed abruptly to a halt in 1835 when he was once again turfed out of office. And this time he was finished. He lost an election. He came back to Tennessee with a pronouncement that went on to become very famous. This is what he said. He said, I told the people of my district that I would serve them as faithfully as I had done. But if not, they might go to hell and I would go to Texas. And he was a man of his word because after failing to be reelected, he packed up his gear and he headed off to Texas, just like he said he would. He uh, he left his family behind, but he planned to bring them along after he'd got himself settled. Uh, this was at the point, as you will remember from, from earlier on during the introduction, this was at a point where a lot of American uh, settlers and immigrants were moving to, to Mexico illegally again, but a lot of these people were moving across the border into this uh, into this area and settling as Texians. And he himself was one of these people. He, he arrived in Texas in early 1836, and he immediately volunteered to fight for the Texians in the revolution. And in exchange for a parcel of land after the, re- uh, the revolution was over, uh, he, he agreed to, uh, to serve in the Texian army, and that... Was why Davy Crockett turned up at the Alamo on the eighth of February, along with the other reinforcements that had arrived to defend the small fortress as part of this sort of this this rugged band of misfits that, that trumped in as as an unofficial reinforcement force uh, from the the Texian army. Now. This brings us to the battle itself, because a few days after Davy Crockett arrived, the Alamo's commanding officer, Colonel Neal, you remember, uh, he left. He left the Alamo to go and round up more supplies and more reinforcements. He gave command of the Alamo to a bloke named William B. Travis, who was actually very unpopular with most of the volunteers who had come uh, to fight at the Alamo, and was rejected quite roundly as them uh, by them as, as their leader. Uh, and as a result of this, as a result of his rejection as the leader, there was actually an election held for a new leader. And rather than poor old Travis, it was actually Jim Bowie who won the approval of these men, of the of all of the uh, of all the volunteers, the soldiers there. Now Bowie, he celebrated this win by going out on the town in San Antonio and getting riggity riggity wrecked. He got absolutely blind drunk. That is one way to assert your authority as a new commander, I suppose. But after this. Maybe you know, as the hangover was clearing, he agreed to share command with Travis. After all, and so these two blokes, uh, they 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 work together in the for the mutual defence of uh, of the Alamo. Now, again. Once the hangover had worn off, they uh, they realised had to deal with the people that were worried about what would happen when the Mexicans finally arrived. Now, people were starting to flee San Antonio, civilians and non-combatants and the like. They were starting to pack up their bags and leave town, and there was very little in the way of reinforcements or extra supplies coming down the line. It looks like Neil, Colonel Neil, the the, the previous commander, you remember, uh, things he, he wasn't he wasn't doing a bang up job of, uh, of of you know meeting his objectives there, and so things weren't looking good for the Texians. However. Things also weren't looking a whole lot better for the Mexicans. There was almost 2,000 of them marching towards San Antonio, and they'd been marching for weeks through one of the coldest winters in Texan history, they'd had to start. To, uh, they, they, so they'd had to deal right with teamsters quitting after not getting paid. They're running short of supplies. They don't have enough uh, in the way of horses and oxen and everything to pull all of the the supplies they've got. Uh, even even the meager supplies they do have, the soldiers are on rations. And on top of all of that, they're marching themselves through forty centimeters of snow. It was not, in other words, it was not a very happy time for the Mexican army. But All the same, they marched onwards towards the Alamo and they finally arrived on the 23rd of February in 1836. They immediately occupy San Antonio and they run up a red flag in view, in clear, plain view of the Alamo to tell those inside that there would be no quarter given. The Mexicans were there to fight to the death no matter what and anyone who surrendered would not be taken prisoner. They would be put to death. Now, the Texians inside the Alamo, they considered this, they thought about how they were going to respond, and then they defiantly fired the biggest cannon they had in order to send a very clear message that they were rejecting this uh, the, the, this this intimidation tactic uh, that the Mexicans were putting on. All the same, however, they did send out some envoys, they sent out some emissaries to go and discuss things with the Mexicans. These Texian envoys, they offered an honourable surrender, realising their situation was hopeless, but this... Was rejected by the Mexicans. They said they would only accept an unconditional surrender, what they called an, a a surrender at discretion, where which obviously gave gave over the Texians completely and utterly to the to the mercy of the uh, of the Mexicans. And as the Mexicans had already said, there wasn't going to be any mercy. Not a particularly good deal uh, for the Texians there. So the emissaries they return to the Alamo and they tell they tell Travis and Bowie the news. And uh, these blokes, they, they decide, all right, well, that's what, the, it's victory or death then. And, uh, and they fire the cannon once again to inform the Mexicans of their defiance, and they begin preparations for the battle. As did the Mexicans, they put together artillery batteries facing the Alamo, which they slowly inch closer and closer and closer to the fort, firing hundreds of cannonballs as they advance. Now, these cannonballs were rather simply loaded back, back into the Texian cannons and fired back. Although the Texians were running low on gunpowder, and so they stopped doing this after a couple of days. Now, on the 24th, Bowie had fallen ill, uh, so tra- this left Travis left Travis in in sole command of the Alamo. And he sent a famous letter out as the Mexicans advance. Uh, he sent out a famous letter uh, with a messenger who was able to slip past, get past the Mexican lines, uh, to make sure and uh, that it was published throughout Texas and, and actually more broadly throughout the United States as well. This letter is called to the people of Texas and all Americans in the world, and it begged anyone and everyone to come and reinforce the Alamo. It's a very famous letter. You can actually you can go online and read the text of it. It's uh, it's uh, it's been either it's been either sort of admired or. Directed Rided as, uh, you know, as either very inspirational patriotism, or just completely over the top, uh, you know, a last ditch attempt, a hopeless, a hopeless effort to, uh, to, to, you know, fight a lost cause. But it's a very interesting thing to read, and it, it ends with a very famous sentence: "Victory or death." Anyway. As a result of the letter, uh, uh, the Texans did organise a small reinforcement party of about 300 or so people, but only 50 or so actually made it uh, through the bitter cold all the way to the Alamo. After a march of about 140 kilometres, the others turned back or abandoned the effort altogether. And these reinforcements, they were snuck into the Alamo on the 4th of March. Uh, But the day before, the Mexicans had also had reinforcements of their own, around 1,000 of them. So very, very clearly outnumbering them. And the attack from the Mexicans after the, you know, after the the, the artillery barrage and after the reinforcements on both sides, the attack finally came on the 6th of March. The Mexican commander, Santa Ana, you remember the president, uh, he was impatient to capture the Alamo. And uh, what finally tipped it over the edge was when Bowie's cousin-in-law, Juana Navarro Ulsbury, approached the Mexicans on the 4th of March to try to negotiate a surrender once again. Santa Ana, he goes, enough's enough. No more talking. It's time for action. And the attack is now going to take place. Let's get to it. So on the night of the 5th, the Mexicans finally stopped their bombardment, the bombardment of the Alamo, meaning that the Texians inside were actually able to enjoy their first proper night's sleep in a long time. This was not a gentlemanly move by Santa Ana. This was not something designed to do so the, the Texians could uh, you know, be fresh and ready to fight the battle the next day. Not at all. The Mexicans were fighting on the exhausted Texians falling asleep uh, you know, and falling into quite deep, exhausted sleeps as well because... At half past five in the morning on the 6th of March, with so many of the Texian defenders still sound asleep, around 1,800 Mexican soldiers quietly advanced on the Alamo. They killed the Texian watchmen and they arrived at the walls of the fortress before sounding the bugles and then they attacked. The Texians woke up and scrambled into action, surprised to see the Mexicans had got so, you know, within musket range, without, with hardly, hardly having lost a single man. And uh, Travis started running about, rousing everyone and ordering them to their posts, ready to defend the Alamo. Now, initially, the Mexicans actually stuffed it up a fair bit. They were closely packed together and they were easy targets for the Texian artillery. Many Mexicans died needlessly, but as their numbers pressed forward, they began to pick off the Texians on the wall with, uh, with with their own firearms, including, I'm sorry to say, Travis himself, who was actually one of the first men to die. The Mexicans breached the walls ultimately by climbing them, finding a point that wasn't directly threatened by the Texian artillery, and swarming over the top of this wall while the Texians desperately tried to re-maneuver their cannons in order to defend themselves. Hundreds of Mexicans poured into the Alamo, relying on strength of numbers, killing Texians left and right and seizing control of the artillery. Some of the remaining Texians fell back into the barracks, into the chapel, uh, where they were ready to make their last stand. They uh, sort of dug small holes through the walls so they could shoot from, uh, shoot from within outside there, and, they, and they, they closed the doors and barred them up there like that. Other Texians trapped outside on the walls themselves dropped down onto the prairie outside where they were cut down by the Mexican cavalry and none managed to escape. The very last Texians to still fight out in the open were Davy Crockett and his men, who fought tooth and nail, hand and fist. Once they ran out of bullets, they used their guns as clubs and fought with their knives. And some accounts report that Crockett actually surrendered to the Mexicans and was executed. It's never been determined for sure whether Crockett surrendered or died fighting a few Texians definitely did surrender but we don't know if Crockett is amongst them but one of the iconic images to emerge from the from the battle of the Alamo of course was that famous painting Davy Crockett swinging his rifle around his head like a club as he attacked made this famous last stand against the Mexicans and whether he surrendered or whether he uh, he went he, you know he 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 died fighting he certainly went down swinging you can say that but that was the end of the famous frontiersman Davy Crockett anyway After securing the rest of the Alamo, the Mexicans turned their attention now to the barracks and the chapel that held the remaining defenders inside. They turned a cannon on the doors that led inside and they blasted the doors to bits. The Mexican soldiers then let loose a, uh, a volley of, uh, of musket fire and then went inside to kill every single Texian soldier they could find. And this included, I'm sorry to say, Jim Bowie, who was still, he was still sick in bed. We're not 100% sure how his life ended either, but the story goes that he was sitting up in bed wielding pistols and his famous knife before he was killed too. The very last Texians to be killed were those manning the cannon that had been set up set up inside the chapel. After one last cannon blast, They were unable to reload before being shot and bayoneted by the Mexicans, who again swarmed into the chapel. So, after about an hour's fighting, the battle was finally over. And once it was over, the Mexican soldiers went around shooting and bayoneting all of the Texian soldiers who were lying around, regardless of whether they were alive or dead. If they moved, or if they were lying bleeding out like that, the Mexicans still came and 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 confirmed the kills. I guess you could say, put it like that. And this actually resulted. And the death of a few more Mexican soldiers, as the bloodlust meant that they shot their own men in their confusion, as, as, well, as, uh, as well as killing and finishing off all of these Texians there. But this killing frenzy also meant that almost every single Texian who had taken part in the fighting was killed. Only two combatants survived. One was a bloke named Joe, who was a slave who belonged to to uh, to Travis, the uh, the you know the 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 commander who had been killed on the walls. He had fought the Mexicans out there on the walls, uh, alongside Travis, but then had withdrawn uh, inside into the interior, into the chapel, into the barracks, uh, and was found by the Mexicans once inside there, and they assumed that he was a non-combatant, so lucky for him. The other bloke who survived, the other the other bloke who had fought, fought the Mexicans but survived, was actually a Mexican himself. He, he, his name was Brigido Guerrero, uh, and he was a deserter. He'd left the Mexican army to fight and defect for the for the Texians, and he survived by convincing the Mexi- Mexicans that he'd been taken prisoner by the Texians. So very, very clever stuff from him indeed, but... The rest of the Texians, unfortunately, they were killed and almost every single corpse of theirs was piled up with the the rest of them and burnt. The Mexicans spared the civilians and the non-combatants, and they actually sent Joe, the slave, off back to the Texians to spread word of the Mexicans' vicious and bloody victory at the Alamo. He was accompanied by a woman named Susanna Dickinson, the wife of one of the Texian defenders, and together they returned to the Texians and they related what had happened at the disastrous Battle of the Alamo. And here's the thing, here's the thing. Antonio López de Santa Anna, the, the President General of Mexico, he and his bloodthirsty, ruthless victory at the Alamo, it sowed the seeds of his ultimate downfall and the ultimate defeat of the Mexicans uh, during the Texas Revolution. While the Alamo had been besieged, delegates from around Texas had met uh, as part of this the provisional uh, Texian government and declared independence, proclaiming the Republic of Texas. And one of the first things the Republic did was evacuate people from the areas near the Mexican army in a process known as the Runaway Scrape. They did this to get them out of the way of this bloodthirsty advancing Mexican army. And this was all part of uh, Santa Ana's plan. He thought that if he put on a show of of, of great bloodshed and viciousness and ruthlessness, the, the Texians would lose heart and they would surrender. And To begin with, it looked like they were doing that with evacuating, with the the runaway scrape and whatever else like that, you know, moving enormous numbers of people from the towns around uh, San Antonio and and even the burning of those towns so they wouldn't fall into Mexican hands. However, after these people that were being evacuated, after these evacuees heard about what had happened at the Alamo, all of a sudden, volunteers are turning up left, right and centre to join the Texian army and and especially all of these people are being evacuated right they so many of them are now deciding to sign up and fight for the, Tex, for, the for the for the Texas revolution for the, for this new newly procl- proclaimed republic of texas and the texian army exploded in size. This was the exact opposite of what Santa Ana had wanted. Uh, after this bloodbath at the Alamo, he expected them to just roll over, be too scared to stand up to Mexico. But in reality, it galvanized support for the revolution, it galvanized support for the nascent republic, for, the, for, the, for this new republic here, like this, and it swelled the ranks of the Texians and ultimately led to the defeat. Of the Mexican Army of Operations, had he not perpetrated such butchery, had he shown moderation and mercy, and simply taken prisoners, it's highly unlikely that the Texian Army would have grown in size as people flocked to avenge those who died at the Alamo. And so, what happened as a result of this new, this new huge growth in uh, in size, of the Texian Army, on the 21st of April, the Battle of San Jacinto effectively ended the Texas Revolution as Sam Houston led almost a thousand Texians against over thirteen hundred Mexicans, defeating them decisively with their newly swollen ranks. The Texian charged into battle with battle cries of Remember the Alamo, which goes to show how determined they were to revenge the bloodbath. This battle also led to the capture of of General Santa Ana, who had to bargain for his life by offering a peace settlement and this peace settlement more or less secured the independence of the republic of texas as it mandated the withdrawal of all mexican troops from texas to the south of the rio grande and this meant this meant that the texians were successful in staging their revolution and while mexico didn't officially recognize the sovereignty of the republic of texas they were a de facto independent nation from that moment on. And it was all because of the vicious and bloodthirsty ways of Santa Ana at the Battle of the Alamo and this 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 huge uprising that it brought against him as the winds turned uh, to be in the sails of the Texians uh, as they looked to avenge what had happened at the Alamo there like that. And, and it's no surprise, it won't surprise you to learn that the, 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 the motto of the short-lived Republic of Texas was Remember the Alamo. However, I'm sorry to say that uh, the establishment of the Republic of Texas was not the, uh, was not the story of, of liberty and happiness that you might have hope uh, might have hoped for here, because there were many laws and, and practices put in place that, uh, that really did not end up on the right side of history. For example, free African Americans, so either former slaves or freedmen, weren't allowed to live in the Republic under any circumstances any freed slaves any freedmen they had to leave Texas immediately they just were not allowed to live in the Republic there women also lost a lot of the rights that they had enjoyed under Mexican rule they couldn't own property they couldn't take legal action they couldn't even sign documents on their old behalf as the uh, the, the the legal system of the Republic of Texas was highly highly regressive especially compared with uh, what was you know what was going on with the uh, with the Mexican legal system that ruled the area beforehand women lost out enormously there. And of course, the poor old Native Americans once again got the short end of the stick. The new Republic of Texas government failed to honour the treaty that the Cherokee had signed with Sam Houston during the revolution, claiming that Houston didn't have the authority to sign such a treaty in the first place. However, despite all this, The Republic of Texas, it lasted for 10 years in total until it was annexed by the United States. Most Texians supported annexation and most voted in favor of it. And this annexation was the direct cause of the Mexican-American War, which took place between 1846 and 1848. And this war cost Mexico over half of its territory as the United States expanded into what is now California, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, and of course, New Mexico. And all of this comes back to the Battle of the Alamo and the legends that were forged there. The fact that the Texians... Surged forth to avenge those who had perished at the Battle of the Alamo and uh, ultimately in doing so uh, defeated the Mexicans as part of the Texas Revolution, which then led to the annexation of Texas, which then led to the Mexican-American War, which then led to the United States being the size and the shape that we know it today, controlling the land that that it does uh, even today in 2019. It all came back to the Battle of the Alamo and and men such as Jim Bowie and Davy Crockett and many others whose deaths went on to inspire Texians to win their revolution once and for all. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Battle of the Alamo, as well as, you know, a couple of interesting stories about some of the more famous blokes who who were there. I've never I've always seen it referenced in popular culture and TVs and movies but I never really understood what the Battle of the Alamo was about and, and it, it, it as as you've just discovered it actually proved to be a pretty important uh, a pretty important milestone in 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 the history of of that region in both American and, and and Mexican history there so very very interesting to learn about anyway that's it for another week of half Just history usual boring housekeeping nonsense here half-as of course the website you find old episodes there links to subscribe iTunes Spotify whatever else they're like that if you want to leave a review on iTunes, that'd be fantastic. Make sure it's five stars. I'm not interested in those in in those one star reviews. Get them out of here. If you want to write a one star review, just put just write it on a bit of paper and 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 put it in the garbage can, please. Also tell your friends about the show if you want. You don't have to, but I'd appreciate it if you did. And, uh, of course, quick plug for the Patreon. If you want to sign up there, there's a range of benefits there. You can get uncut shows. You can get uh, behind-the-scenes look at stuff. You can also become a co-executive producer of the show. And, of course, merch is uh, well on its way. There'll be a shop, a half Hour History shop put up where, uh, again, check halfhousehistory.net. You'll find the link there before too much longer, uh, where you can go and buy T-shirts and uh, and all sorts of other stuff there like that. Uh, I'll send it out to you, no worries. So... That's it for another episode. That's it for another week. Thanks so much for hanging out with me. And as usual, we're going to close the show out with a question posed on Reddit here and one that's very pertinent to what we've been discussing here, posed by Reddit historian Alex92, who asks, is it too late to return Texas to Mexico? Are there any return policies?